Maximilian Spinelli. Give me a name. David Bowie. Welcome to Give Me a Name, where a guest presents me, Ben Kirschenbaum, with a dead historical figure they find interesting, and we discuss. I'll refrain from one of my little quips today, so you can enjoy at least a couple seconds of the course. There is a biography of David Bowie by Leslie Ann Jones, and during the introduction, it describes David Bowie, and she writes, The immortal star man, the godfather of freaks, the savior of outsiders, alternative thinkers, and sexual vacillators, the dispossessed, the young, the past it, and the never-will-be dudes. Wow. I don't. I didn't. I didn't understand a word of it. I don't really get it either. Yeah. <laughs> but it sounds really good. That sounds beautiful. I. That's not the quote that I picked out. What is your quote? To I start picked it off? out a quote uh, from the book. I read a book called On Bowie. For On this. Bowie. I read a book for this. I did research, and I read a book. One of the quotes that it started with. It said it was. It was from David. I'm using myself as a canvas and trying to paint the truth of our time on it. It's the most pretentious thing <laughs> yeah, I was ever just about said to say. in this lifetime. But for some reason, he can get away with shit like that. He can when get I, away with When anything. I started reading the book, I was like, this fucking guy, where did I get myself into it? Now I'm like, I get it. Like, he was painting the time on it. You know what I mean? Like, he's a canvas. He, he's all about the canvas. He's yeah. a canvas, yeah. So born on January 8th, 1947 in Brixton, he winds up in Bromley, which is a suburb of London. And the only thing, there are two points that I want to make about his sort of where he grows up. First of all, suburban kid. Right. And when you see this, you know, larger-than-life figure later on, this quintessential rock star. Yeah. It's interesting that he's just a little kid from the suburbs. You would think he'd be like a, be a city boy. Big city boy. Big city boy. Wanted to be a big city boy. <laughs> you could tell, like, he always wanted to be more than he was. Right. He's always looking, and very much looking to get out. To get out of his, to get out of the situation that he was in to grow up with. I mean, the guy was playing a character constantly. Yeah. To the point where he would... He would call the characters he was playing by their names. He actually Third had person. personas. Major Tom, Ziggy Stardust, Aladdin Sane. Thin he, White Duke. He's always looking to put on these different personas, and the canvas line actually really does make a lot of sense in the context of Bowie. Yeah. Especially because he would he, he would be like, you know, David Jones is the real, is, it's who he is. But that he kept for personal life. And then he in the begin he used to be like, oh, that guy's disappearing. I don't know where that begins and this ends. I saved that person for like personal life. Listen, Iman got David Jones, and I'm jealous. <laughs> <laughs> so born David Jones, he changes the name. He's really, they call him Davy Jones. He changes the name because one of the main people in the band The Monkees in the yeah. mid-60s is also called Davy Jones. So he's like, I can't do this. He also changed it originally to Tom Jones for a few weeks, but then Tom Jones, the singer, breaks out. Yeah. So finally he lands on, well, David Bowie. Let me which, tell you something. He's not, which is named after the knife, right? The guy, it's named after the guy who used the Bowie knife. Yes. Because it's fucking punk rock. It's punk rock. It's badass. <laughs> That's cool. And let me tell you something. He would not be nearly as successful if he was David Jones. Nobody's buying that guy's album. David Jones. Well, there was a Davy Jones. We no. know exactly what his he career would have been jo- like. Davy Jones, and he had to sell him under the monkeys. You know what I mean? Underrated band. Yeah, actually monkeys. fantastic. <laughs> really. <laughs> Last train to Clarksville. There will be a lot of me just singing randomly in a British accent throughout the episode. You have a lovely voice. And I will say to, to start this off, 
Um, I knew nothing about David Bowie before this. I didn't even know the hits were his songs because I, I maybe heard them a few times. And uh, now I, David Bowie's in all of us. You know what I mean? He's now all around he's, us. He's the main person. Why don't you? I mean, you're thinking about getting a tattoo of David Bowie. I'm not thinking about it. I got it. I sent it to the, the artist. Oh, I should <laughs> say of David Bowie. Is it of his face? Yes, I'm getting a detailed portrait of his face on my face. I'm changing my face. I'm, uh, I am. He is Nicolas Cage. I am John. It's, it's a face-off situation. Yes. It's a Travolta Cage situation. Um, no, I am. I'm getting the lightning bolt. next. So next Saturday, I have I have an appointment. And that's a Aladdin Sane reference, I believe. His uh, first album yeah, after the, Ziggy Stardust. He was like, Ziggy Stardust is dead. And then right. he was a lot insane, which was pretty much the same character. Ziggy goes to America, is Woo! what he said. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, a little more risque. Um, yeah, so I'm getting the, the 3D light bulb, but in black and in gray. And the reason why I'm doing that, I'm getting, I'm finishing my arm. I'm getting like two other tattoos that day. Right. And then when I saw that lightning bolt, it looked exactly like I used to draw like doodle in my, my um, notebook. In school, in the school years, because I was an artist, because I was a creator, because I was like that kind of person. And it was always that lightning bolt. I didn't even know. It was just, I think it was a coincidence. I used to draw 3D lightning bolts all the time. And I didn't I didn't even know who David Bowie was. So, so there is certain... So like that, when I saw that, I was like, this guy's cool. And it reminded me of, like, I've always been, I've always loved that little symbol. So I guess I'm David Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping that you would reveal the twist later in yeah, the episode. Yeah. <laughs> who do you pick? Uh, myself, who yeah. is dead? Mm-hmm. What? I guess I'm alive and dead at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the reasons why, going back to his childhood, why he wants to get out is because of his relationship with his parents and who his parents are, particularly the mom. The mom is described as very, very cold, doesn't really support his career in the arts. At one point, he says that just kind of flat out, she never really took to me, never quite took to me. Uh, she never laughed. She never smiled. And he also, in a later interview, would quote the Philip Larkin poem, This Be the Verse. And the most famous stanza from that poem is, They fuck you up, your mom and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you. Isn't that insane that literally everything that anyone is can be tied back to the way that they were raised? Because he had a withholding mom and his whole life was dedicated to getting attention. That was yes. it. That was it. And that's it. She did this. So if anything, he owes it to her. <laughs> right. And that reminds me of another story. So David Bowie, for some of you uh, who are familiar with what he looked like, looked like his eyes were two different colors. Because he got punched in the eye. Yes. Got socked in the eye. And the only friends with the guy. The only reason why I mentioned it is because that would be another example of something bad happening to him that ends up actually being quite useful. It was a gift. It ends up being a gift. He admits it. And the guy who punches him, George Underwood, who ends up being not only his good friend, but also collaborator, designs some of his album covers. <laughs> they got into a fight over a girl when they're mm. teenagers. And apparently, by the way, Bowie is the asshole in this yeah, story. Yeah, he openly said it. He goes, I deserved it. Yeah. So they're fighting over a girl. Bowie, basically, they, the George and the girl have a date planned. And Bowie fixes it so that they both think that they're standing each other up. That's a sitcom move. You got to respect the game. Oh, it's great. <laughs> and then he steals his bike. And <laughs> he dips his hand in, in warm water before he goes to bed, which was an odd move. But... And then he's like, we were on a break. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That's great. So David Bing, great. 
no, but like honestly, that the eye thing was the best thing that ever happened to him because it made him even look even more like this fucking celestial alien character. You right. know what I mean? Those two, the two eyes that are kind of like crazy. Right. Also, so, great excuse because well, having one pupil that's always dilated is great for the coke years because yeah, right. you have an excuse. <laughs> What are you talking about? It's a disease. Oh, I, got, yeah, it's, I it's took a, a punch. You know? <laughs> but why are both dilated, David? <laughs> Just trying to make a match. <laughs> so it looks like he has two different... It looks like he has a blue... If you look at photos of him, that he has a blue eye and a black eye. Really, yeah. it's just that one eye is completely dilated. Yeah. So... And I think he always had blurry vision, by the way, for in, in that one eye for the rest of his life. Well, yeah. You can't be seeing good when that pupil's all the way. It looks like, you, like your eyes are always dilated. But once again, still kind of worth it Gift. for his image. Yeah. The last thing I'll say just uh, about his childhood, other than his musical influences, is that he has an older half, a much older half brother. And his older half brother, named Terry Burns, is very, educates David on a lot of early music and on a lot of exposing him to the art world. So they have a close relationship. But Teddy then gets diagnosed with schizophrenia and seizures and ends up in a sanatorium. Yeah. And kills himself actually years later. Which is. It's wild. What a wild story. But it also really helped him. It also helps him. And and you see that in terms of, first of all, a lot of his early lyrics involve mental illness. He was always afraid of having his own mental illness because it ran in the family, not just with Terry. He is one of those characters where the seeds are planted. You could kind of see, can predict, obviously, what's going to happen, but you can sort of see it. It's so interesting that like this guy who his whole thing was having multiple personalities and one of the closest people in his life literally had the condition of having multiple personalities right multiple voices and being multiple things it's, it all comes back to childhood man so terry burns shows him some early music and there is one artist in particular and one song in particular that just sort of grabs bowie as a kid and it is little richard and the song tutti frutti tutti frutti he said he heard god when he first heard that song and there's going to be many many influences in david bowie's life but that would be kind of the spark david bowie rock star loved black artists you like to also uh most rock was stolen from black people right wasn't blues certainly i mean blues and jazz and when you see someone like elvis i mean it's it's pretty direct and you didn't really give give credit but david bowie was somebody who like worshipped james brown worshipped aretha franklin yeah to the point where like those people ended up respecting him like there was like something in the book that was like james brown like asked for David Bowie to be one of the people that sang it, like a tribute for him. Mm. And like Aretha Franklin wanted to work with him just as much as she, he wanted to work with her, but probably not just as much because I mean, she's Aretha but goddamn Franklin. But that's cool. Also to jump around a little bit, but with Bowie on race, there's a very famous interview in the early 80s and David Bowie was one of the main people. So when MTV is starting, so I'm totally jumping around, but when MTV is starting out in the early 80s, David Bowie is kind of on the forefront of music videos. He was already making music videos, by the way, in the 70s pre-MTV. And- Bowie is has an interview with uh, on an MTV show, and he's telling the interviewer, I think the guy's name is Goodman, Bowie is very innocently, well, not innocently, because obviously he's got a point to make. He's playing coy. He's playing coy. He's and working this guy like a fucking fiddle. It's one of the, okay, so what happens is Bowie says, why aren't there more black artists on MTV? Why don't you show... Uh, the specific artist he mentions is Prince. Yeah. And the only time that you show black artists music videos is at 2.30 in the morning or whatever. And at first, the interviewer is like, you know, defending MTV is like, well, that's not really true, whatever. Bowie kind of stays silent. Yep. 
and just lets the guy dig his own grave. Just digs his grave. And this guy, he's like, oh, people would be scared of Prince. And it's like, yeah. And it was it was wild. But David Bowie, he would like throw in like little things would be like, but why? And like, that's simply not true, Mr. Goodman. It was it was brilliant brilliant in terms of especially when you're trying to have a gotcha moment on video. Yeah. Just sort of sit back and let the person devolve. You know what it was, too? And the way it ended was very classy, too, because he was like, okay. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, just, at the end of it, because the guy just keeps on saying like, "Well, you know," yeah. and he slips in the in the middle. He's like, "Well, the people in Poughkeepsie aren't going to like this. Like, you yeah. come from a you know diverse city, but yeah. people in the middle of the country aren't going to like it." He and made they, it worse. And Bowie's just nodding. <laughs> yeah. He's like, mm, "Interesting, mm-hmm. interesting." <laughs> and at the very end, the guy's like, "Do you get what I'm saying? Like, you, you see what I mean? You get what I'm saying?" And Bowie's just like, "Well, I understand what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. It's perfect. Very anti-racist move for somebody to do in the." 80s, which is like I mean, the guy was always ahead of his time. Also, really, do you think that he was doing that? I think it was number one because he was always somebody that was about equality, seeing everybody, like being a, a champion of the people. But is he still trying to live down this little late 70s stuff that he was yeah, saying? Yeah, so a bit of a thin white Duke villainous time. Oh boy. The thin, like, white duke. What, what was he saying? So one of David Bowie's personas or characters is called the thin white duke. He takes it on for the album Station to Station, or it is the main album is Station to Station, a little bit in Young American. So this is 76-ish. Mm-hmm. And he's very, very, he's got a huge drug issue. Cocaine is the main one, but alcohol too. He described himself as an al- alcoholic later in life before yep. he sobered up. David Bowie is moving away from the most flamboyant character that he has, which is Ziggy Stardust, which has got the red mullet Mm -hmm. and all these space costumes and very androgynous look and everything. And then Thin White Duke is kind of more clean cut. Thin White Duke, tell me if I'm wrong, though, that is Tilda Swinton. It's it's uncanny. <laughs> it's, it's, it's it's really it really is amazing, and it sounds like we're doing a bit, but no, it's it's her. Yeah, yeah. So the thin white Duke is kind of you know forming this this kind of character. He's this 1976 tour. A few bad things that he does while he's the thin white Duke. The most controversial part is that there's a photo of him where it looks like he's giving a Heil Hitler. Yeah, and if you look at the photo. You know, the difference between a Heil Hitler and a wave, a wave is a little, you know, I mean, it's a would fair Would you call mistake. that the most controversial? Because I would say the more controversial is the stuff that he was definitely, definitely set. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> there was one interview that he was doing, and like I think he was trying to do a bit, very dry wit, but I don't I don't know how, how much of it is a bit, and he ended up trying to take it back. But he was basically saying, he said something along the lines of, Adolf Hitler was the first rock star. He definitely says Adolf Hitler was the first rock star. And then he also says something about like, and I'm talking about, I'm looking for, we should bring back fascism or something in Britain. And he's like, not the way the Nazis did it, like real, true fascism. Right. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, no. I mean, like, more extreme. Yeah, like yeah. real fascism. And it was just... <laughs> I will say this. Obviously, he was trying to be controversial, and he was very controversial. Yeah. He described the Thin White Duke at one point, a very Aryan fascist type, a would-be romantic with absolutely no emotion at all, but who sprouted, who spouted a lot of neo-romance. Also, no emotion at all. Maybe going back to mom. Yeah. In that case. Well, he used to, he used to, I remember something about like in his earlier career, or like what was that documentary that he was in, The Cracked Actor, he said, he was basically like, I'm dead inside, like I don't feel, that's why I have to make these characters, because they actually feel things. Yeah. But that's like, 
Just go to therapy, David. Yeah, <laughs> especially younger in his life when yeah. he's taking on all the characters. You mm-hmm. see in later interviews and even like Conan stuff, yeah. he's he's so much more comfortable in his own skin when he's mm-hmm. older as opposed to the interviews when he's early on where it feels like he's kind of trying to make a point in mm-hmm. some way. But first of all, I want to get back to this line of Hitler is the first rock star. <laughs> I know that, of course, he meant it in a kind of, in a way that was trying to stir the pot. Yep. Hitler was in some ways a rock star. <laughs> I mean, look at those old videos. He's the crowd, you know, in, in the you know different yeah. videos that you see of him talking, they're acting like they're at a rock concert. I mean, men wanted to be him. Women wanted to be with him. <laughs> the guy was a rock star. <laughs> uh, so I, I just thought that that was, you know, a, a, a compelling way of, of wording something and that there is a point behind that. Yeah. However... All the other comments about how fascism should come back. Also, right around this time is when Eric Clapton is saying another famous British rock star is talking about Pakistani immigrants coming to England. And Mm -hmm. he has a very sort of uh, very controversial racist things to say. And a whole movement called Rock Against Racism begins largely as a reaction to Clapton, but also Bowie's part of it. Which is wild because you're this guy that's like that's just trying intentionally trying to be this genderless, amorphous, like play to the freaks kind of guy. But you're like, wait a second, let's bring back fascism, which is the most anti thing. But that's, I guess, trying to make an excuse of being the character. It's like you can make a lot of different kinds of characters. You didn't need the Aryan character. Yeah. And one of those things where it's like I'm playing the character. It's a bit. That's one of his main excuses. He has two excuses when it comes to those comments because he does say he does regret them later on yeah and not even too much later on i will say he always maintained that he didn't actually do the the the, the heil salute he, yes yeah, yeah, yeah he says he, that simply he owned it. up to everything in his life except for that yes <laughs> look at the photo I'll, i was about to say i'll put the photo up but it's a little disturbing it's a bit much yeah, yeah it's a bit much so he does not a he, coincidence that shortly after this he becomes he he sobers up a bit yes but moves to Berlin and becomes an anti-racist yes and you know that is the legacy is much more the anti-racist legacy this is sort of a blip on the radar yeah. but he says that it was a character so that's excuse number one and excuse number two is that he was just inebriated constantly. I mean, the guy was fucked up. How many interviews and TV spots where he just couldn't even see straight? He couldn't see straight, not just because of the eye. And he <laughs> made the... He said he didn't even remember making the album Station to Station in 76, where he's really the Thin White Duke. I mean, this is somebody who unapologetically was fame-hungry and was desperate to get to that level. Yes. So I think once he was there, he kind of straightened himself out because he was willing to do anything and everything to, to become a star. Yes. But I, I, you have to give credit where credit's due is that like he fucking owned that on the way up to. He was like, well, I'm just trying to be famous. <laughs> I'm yeah. trying to move the needle, you know? Yeah. Which is cool. I, I, I really do appreciate the candor when it comes to that. Yeah. So going back to his child a little bit to get away from the, the Nazi, Nazi slash stuff. anti-racist <laughs> yeah. stuff in his career. One thing that a lot of... So David Bowie kind of makes it big when he's not an old guy. He's in his 20s. However, because he starts off so early, he struggles for a long time in order to make a name for himself and to find a solid identity, I suppose. He also very unapologetically stole from everyone, and he loved it. I think that David Bowie... So this is uh, good in terms of like his rise and trying to just throw a lot of shit at the wall. He has music early on that is sounds kind of Beatles-y, like yep. kind of, you know, mm-hmm. British uh, folk rock kind of stuff. He also gets into... 
I guess what I'm trying to say is that like throughout his career, but particularly on his way to Space Oddity, he shows that originality is not, there's no real such thing as true originality. Yep. Really what it is is just grabbing a million different things and combining them to, uh, together in a way that's never been seen before. I think what makes him so cool is that he's taking he's taking and borrowing from people every step of the way. And then the people that he's taking from and borrowing and paying tribute to, they end up being like, that was cool. And then they try to emulate him and they're like, he's copying them so well that then they try to do him in their next song. Right. So just to name a few influences on the way, the Velvet Underground, Lou Reed and Velvet Underground play a big, you know, part in Velvet Underground is a band in the late sixties that collaborates a lot with Andy Warhol. They are part of sort of the counterculture subculture Mm -hmm. of New York city. The other major influence on Bowie is a guy named Anthony Newley, who was an incredibly multi-talented artist slash songwriter. He's largely associated with Broadway. He wrote a musical called Stop the World, I Want to Get Off. Also, he wrote the music or co-wrote the music to Willy Wonka. Get out. Yeah. Huh. And if you look at old performances of Newley, they're very reminiscent of Bowie. The voice and kind of the theatricality of it, the comedy aspects of it. The guy's funny. Bowie's got a great sense of humor, especially later in his career when he's collaborating with Ricky Gervais and going on Conan. I mean, Zoolander. Zoolander. Oh, the guy's funny. I like how there are a lot of younger audiences where it's like, finally, we made a reference where it's like, oh, it's the guy from Zoolander. Zoolander. Well, I was telling you this beforehand. I was like, the first time I've ever seen David Bowie was in Zoolander. Mm -hmm. And until today, I think that's all I really knew about. (laughs) Uh, Just, uh, I believe I'm remembering the movie correctly. He is in the scene where... Hansel and Zoolander have a walk off. Walk off. He judges right. the. He, he judges the walk off. Yes, it's it a walk off. It's a walk off. Then the guy has a phone call. He's like, "It's a walk off." And then Zoolander, like, dude, that's in it. Bowie starts it. Right. Standard rules. Get and, going. And if you ever see Bowie do comedy, whether it's in you know extras with Ricky Gervais or the Zoolander scene, he plays it so straight. He's hilarious. He's and and is willing to make fun of himself and because he's always playing Bowie in these you know movies. I mean, he's an actor too. Amazing is for a guy who doesn't really know who he is, he knows exactly who he is. Later on, particularly. Yeah. Later on, he absolutely does. Mm-hmm. So on this rise, we say Anthony Newley, Velvet Underground play mime. In general, he he fucks around with mime and has, like, mime lessons. Bowie gets, like, really, really into it. And you could look at old videos of him, you know, fully in the makeup, getting into mime. And he's, like, pretty good at it and pretty good at, like, moving his body around. And I was about to say, yeah. Miming. Yeah, I was about to say miming. You know what makes him good at miming is he does the miming. Is he does the miming part of it really Is there a verb for mime? Yes, yes. To mime, he mimes, I mime, (laughs) you mime. Yes. We. He has been miming. Yeah. That works. He Okay, so he's putting all this stuff together, but meanwhile, he's not doing well. He's kind of receiving no. failure after failure, and this is a fun one. So in 1965, he does a version of Chim Chimmery from Mary Poppins, and he does it with his band at the time, and a BBC talent agent listens to it, and here just are a few of the comments in 1965 about David Bowie's band. It says, an inoffensive, pleasant nothing instrumentally instrumentally not bad but there's a lack of dynamics of drive and of personality singer devoid of personality oof david bowie devoid of personality well that was an interesting part of this book that i was reading and also just in general learning about him is the guy was so unafraid to fail he tried so hard which mm-hmm. also it's, it's part of the argument where you try hard enough eventually it'll work you know what mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. but also if he can if he quit at different parts of his career like if he didn't actually die an older man 
he wouldn't have been remembered so differently. Imagine if he died shortly at like 27, if he was one of those rock stars that died young mm-hmm. after the, the Nazi stuff. Right. Would not be remembered as a legend. Let me tell you something. Or even in the when he was releasing stinkers in the eighties, nineties. You know what I mean? Right. And obviously, because of the drug use, he could have easily been a twenty-seven club guy. I of mean, he, course. He got through. Yeah. yeah. So I think we're up to the sort of first breakthrough in his career, which is nineteen sixty-nine Space Oddity. He's like, is, is he even twenty? In nineteen sixty-nine, he would be twenty-two, and. He's heavily influenced by the Stanley Kubrick movie, 2001 A Space Odyssey, and the title is a play on 2001 A Space Odyssey. Um, He's also influenced by Kubrick's movie Clockwork Orange. That'll come a little bit later when he's doing Ziggy Stardust. Yeah, his his cult thing, the Ziggy Stardust, looks like something out of that movie. Yes, it's very sort of like neo-futuristic. Yeah. You like that? Neo-futuristic? Did you just make that up? I think I did. Just make it. Mm, Postmodern (laughs) neo-futuristic? Stanley Kubrick, everybody. Uh, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So in Space Oddity, by the way, the song itself, he just got off of, he just left a breakup, got out of a breakup with uh, Hermione Farthingale, who had moved to Denmark. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, So she Avada Kedavra's him. And... So it's this like tough breakup. And if you listen to not just space, the whole album Space Oddity, uh, there's a song specifically called Letter to Hermione, which is a really nice song Mm. about the breakup. But also just the song Space Oddity, there's a lot of loneliness, anguish in it. So Space Oddity is technically a song about this guy named Major Tom, who is going up in space and floating in the most peculiar way. It is a song about loneliness, essentially. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, sci-fi aspects to it, but it's a depressing song. Space Oddity is made nine days, it released nine days before the moon landing. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And for somebody who reinvents himself constantly, he keeps Major Tom throughout the rest of his career. Like, he, he throws references to him. Other people in music mm. end up doing, like, sequels to his songs and stuff. The song Ashes to Ashes, famously, about 11 years later, is mm-hmm. references, we know Major Tom yeah. is a junkie. Yep. So that's another one of him just kind of being aware of the public persona and kind of making fun of him yeah. making fun of himself and and showing that he he gets it everyone sees me as a drug addict it's now. it's one of those things it's like are you major tom are you not major tom it's like with shakespeare poems and when he when he was like well it, people are like oh well he was talking from the perspective of an 18 year old girl and it's like just say you liked guys shakespeare <laughs> you know what i mean and oh, this turned into Bashing Shakespeare's sexual orientation. I don't know what how that is. You well, ever the, seen the, Shakespeare in Love? The, he has a girlfriend. <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow heard of her. But it's like, where do the characters end and begin? And I don't even think David Bowie fully knows. No. There's there's no way. And I think that with his first... So Major Tom is like kind of a character, but his first major character is Ziggy Stardust. The character Ziggy Stardust, 1972, The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust. It is him taking on a full persona, a full character of a alien who comes down to Earth, an androgynous alien, by the way, an alien that purposely has no gender, mm-hmm. comes down to Earth. He's sending a message to the people of Earth, particularly the kids of Earth, telling them that the Earth is going to die in five years. There's a song called Five Years that explains it. Mm-hmm. That there's a star man waiting in the sky who's going to save us all. But the tragedy, the reason why it's the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust is that at the end, he's sort of a victim. He has, feels, you know, like a Greek mythological figure. He he flies too close to the sun and he gets sort of killed by his own fame. 
a little prediction of him. You know what I mean? A little bit of like David Bowie being like afraid of the kind of success and Becoming what's going to happen huge. to him. Yes. Even though it's exactly what he wants. It is exactly what he but wants. But it also terrifies him. And he famously, quote unquote, kills the character. Yeah. In concert in 1973. So Ziggy Stardust, this character... It was who, like one year. It's one year. Yeah. And it's one of the most famous kind of parts of rock. It's mm-hmm. basically... I mean, he's doing it a little bit before, but it's the main example of what's called glam rock. And yep. if you, if there's one term to associate with David Bowie, it probably should be glam rock, which is basically this new era of rock that involves so much spectacle, yeah, and costumes and fashion and well, when you see wigs, so much of like the the late '70s, '80s, all those rock stars that like the long hair, the androgynous, the kind of that's he he informed a lot of it. Oh, a hundred percent, and. Not Wearing only those it, cat suits and shit. Yeah. I mean, e- even when I think of something like Kiss. Yep. Or uh, certainly like a, a lot of bands in the Duran Duran. All of these bands, their sound as, is reminiscent to Bowie, but the whole image of a rock star changes. You know, before Bowie, when you think rock star, I think much more kind of Keith Richards or mm-hmm. even Elvis. Mm-hmm. And now, all of a sudden, rock star means this larger than life. I mean, he's just taking it to its extreme. Yeah. Rock was sex. And then rock became fucking something else. <laughs> you know what I mean? It became ethereal. You know what yeah. I mean? It became like this. It, it, it was always taboo. That was the whole point of rock and roll, to get the parents mad. But he took it to a level that really made everybody upset. <laughs> Oh, also intentionally. I, it's also the coolest fucking name ever. There will never be a cooler name than that. There's questions on where the name exactly came from. Ziggy sounds like Iggy, which is a good <laughs> friend of his. Right. Okay, I was going somewhere with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't just making Ziggy rhymes really. with Biggie. <laughs> the Ziggy might come from Iggy. We're not exactly sure, but Stardust, we do know it comes from a musician named Norman Carl o- Carl Odom, who was referred as legendary Stardust Cowboy. He was sort of an outsider performer, one of the pioneers uh, of the psychedelic genre in the 60s. So that one is a pretty direct reference. And one thing is kind of cool, and I feel like people who are, you know, artists who make content in any sort of medium will find this to be kind of useful, quote unquote, is that Space Oddity is a pretty big hit. The song, not so much the album, but the song is a pretty big hit in 1969, Mm -hmm. but Bowie's kind of afraid that he's just going to be a one-hit wonder after that. Yeah. He makes two albums, The Man Who Sold, who, the Man who sold the World. I did not like that song. And it's a weird song. Nirvana yeah. covered it later on. Mm-hmm. And then he makes, in 1971, arguably, in my opinion, maybe his best album called uh, Hunky Dory. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't get a lot of press. Mm-hmm. So he's not that big until Ziggy. And then Ziggy is what launches. That's what creates David Bowie. But... After Ziggy Stardust becomes a big thing, people start rediscovering all the stuff he's been making over the past three years. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of one of those lessons of like, just keep making shit. You just keep posting shit. Yeah, and people might find it eventually. And then, but let's talk America, because that's when he goes into fucking superstardom. Yes. When he crosses the old aisle. Let's also say one thing in terms of crossing the aisle. David Bowie, for all of his little space... Stories, Space Oddity, Life on Mars, Ziggy Stardust, Starman, whatever. Afraid of flying. Really? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Tried to take a boat or a train or a car whenever he could. That's funny. Yeah. That's a that's a fun tidbit. There's a little anecdote. That's we got a little anecdote. Yeah, it's fine with a rocket ship, but a plane, that's unnatural. <laughs> yeah. No, that's just a little too much. <laughs> he his next album after 
Ziggy Stardust is called Aladdin Sane, which is where the lightning bolt that you are going to get tattooed mm-hmm. onto you sure. is from. <laughs> it's also on the front of the book that I bought. <laughs> oh, it's from the book. It's But no, it's that the iconic image that I think most people would think of when they think of David Bowie is that one picture of him with like the very white face with the orange and blue lightning bolt across his face. Yes. Which I think, mistakenly, a lot of people think is the Ziggy Stardust because it's similar. <laughs> well, it sort of is Ziggy Stardust. It's so kind of both. It's, he's got the red mullet still. He's still pretty much Ziggy Stardust. He described Aladdin Sane as Ziggy goes to America. Aladdin so Sane is Ziggy Stardust at night. <laughs> <laughs> he's kind of transitioning away from the Ziggy Stardust and going into the more Diamond Dogs album. But mm-hmm. anyway, he... Uh, he makes Aladdin saying he goes to America. He's becoming more and more of a superstar. Although he's still, he's extremely popular and, and I mean, making, you know, millions of dollars. He's still kind of a cult figure, though. It's still cool to like David Bowie. Yep. Yep, 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 yep. And I think he went through phases after, it's, once he reached superstardom, mm. of becoming not cool and cool and not cool again. Until until he got to a point where, like, there's, he's literally just the epitome of cool. You know what I mean? Got, yeah. That's one of those things where, that you just go back and forth so many times. But I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> <laughs> Is he just like God? You know? Well, I would say that the point in his career where he maybe turns away from being the coolest guy is with his 1983 album Let's Dance mm-hmm. and that's the most popular that's the most sold David Bowie most successful David Bowie album period mm-hmm. but I think a lot of the diehard David Bowie fans who were with him from the beginning see that as a bit of a sellout album I mean Let's Dance is one of his hits but it sounds like uh, learning more it sounds like him selling out it does it's sound a hit a song little, yeah it's a little Bruce Springsteen born in the USA it's kind of like Let's it was dance. Put on, on your, your red, red shoes, shoes and dance the blues. Which is a great line. Oh, come ah, on. Red and blue. Are you kidding me? But blues is the double meaning. Oh, Let's dance. Just turn it off. Let's just play this. <laughs> yeah, copyright issues. <laughs> if you run, I'll run with you. It's a great song. Uh, I mean, I don't know if... I take back what I said. China Girl is on that album. Uh, which was an anti-racist song, because you wouldn't think so with the title of it. <laughs> <laughs> Sort of. (laughs) He said something along the lines of the video for that song was meant to be anti-racist. Okay. And uh, Modern Love. I mean, it it is a great, great album. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's him becoming more pop. But like, fuck people. Because the second, and this is true in any medium, anything, whether it's comedy, movies, anything, you root so hard for people. And then when they finally reach the top and they make something that everybody likes, you're like, fuck this guy. Of course. Yeah. Pretty much, pretty much every it's time. A, it's every single time with every single person. And you're not actually even judging the piece of art anymore. You're judging the fans of the piece of art. Yeah, which, fuck you. Yeah. You should be proud of your guy. And right? he, yeah, that he finally, that he launched himself into even another level of stardom. Mm-hmm. And he actually was pretty, that, let's dance. I mean, Bowie makes plenty of albums afterwards for the next few decades, but... That is, you know, he never really reaches close to those heights again. Mm-hmm. And he was kind of messed up by it with this, like, in- incredible commercial success, but mixed with a lot of backlash. Well, I think when you go after that fame, and that's kind of your purpose of it, to have those people turn against you is it's horrible. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Which is like the next few albums after that are stinkaroos, no? 
after Let's Dance, you're you're not yeah. I mean, he's got plenty of albums afterwards. He kind of recreates himself with a band in the '90s. He uh, collaborates a little with Nine Inch Nails. He does all this. The guy never stops working. He's releasing music. Constantly. He took a little break in the 2000s when he got sick. Well, but he had a heart attack, right? He had a heart attack and yeah. then removes himself for about nine years. But yeah. I mean, and then at that point though, he's 50, 60, and working till his death. Yeah, I mean, Black Star. That his last album was right before he died. Yes. And about him dying. It was a goodbye album. It was a requiem. Yeah. He probably, he definitely probably had cancer while recording that, no? He did. He had cancer for a year and a half and never revealed it publicly. Which is so punk rock. Yeah. There's just something <laughs> That's that... That's classy. It's... <laughs> Don't, Don't share tell it. People Don't about tell about cancer. <laughs> it's sad. It's sad. Just make an album. <laughs> <laughs> Good music. Lazarus. I will say, like, that's, I really, because, uh, like I said, like, David Bowie was not somebody I was super familiar with, especially the music and that kind of stuff, so I, to listen to the music and really get a feel for it, I listened to mostly to This Is David Bowie on Spotify, and so it's, I didn't, it's a, it's a perfect mix, and even though, like, a lot of the music I didn't really love, a lot of the music I thought was incredible, pure art, and there was stuff that was just fine, which I think is, like, cool, because this is a guy that didn't make something for everyone every single time. No. And he talks in later interviews about how it was, he came to the realization, especially later on, where he's going to make music that he likes, and not try to sort of read the audience. Because when you're talking about late 60s Bowie, on the rise Bowie, he's being weird for weird's sake, in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's trying to get himself in the papers. And successfully, eventually. I mean, listen, it works. But that's also what makes you can kind of criticize because it's like how much of it was a bit. How much of the I'm gay was true. How much of all of what he was doing was true because it was a character. He was doing it to sell. So let's talk about the sexual orientation thing for a second. In 1972, right around the time of Ziggy Stardust, he comes out. He says, I'm gay. Mm-hmm. A few years later, he says, well, actually, I'm bisexual. Yeah. And a few years after that, he says, I, I was full of shit. I'm straight. Yeah. In Ro- Rolling Stone, right? He comes out as heterosexual. Yeah. <laughs> but like he famously for like 10 years was like, you know, I met my wife when we were fucking the same bloke. <laughs> like that was a bit that he was doing and he loved saying it. So. And that wasn't true. So the weird, <laughs> the crazy thing about this is that you can argue that he's you know, misappropriating gay culture Mm -hmm. by pretending to be gay. At the same time, he's coming out. This is only a few years after homosexuality was decriminalized in In England. In England, right, yeah. Maybe he's lying, but he's either a gay icon or a gay villain. He's not anything in between. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's like one of those things where he, like, I think he he recognized and saw, and I think he genuinely was obsessed with the culture, Mm -hmm. and I think he genuinely, and he definitely was an ally and that kind of stuff, and he wanted to be a part of the community, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think he saw that it got people talking. It also got people upset in a way that was, like, eye-opening and that kind of stuff. So I think he saw an opportunity as well, and I also don't know. I think it's like, that was one of the things that's like, he might have actually been a fucking alien. Who knows? I think he probably fucked some guys just to do it for the bit. I he, I believe I'm that. pretty <laughs> sure he did have sex with men. Yeah. Yeah, he was so committed to the bit that he became, that he was gay. Listen, when you're doing as much lewds as he's doing, it doesn't really matter who's laying next to you. You know what I mean? Also, when he makes the comment in 1972, you alluded to this, he was married. Yeah. He has two wives in his life. Uh, uh, one who, uh, Angie, Angela. which is the first one, it's very reminiscent of how his mom looked at his dad, which is that he, basically David Bowie's mom said to the dad that it was kind of a cordial agreement for them to be married to each other. The dad yeah. fawned over the mom, but the mom was just like, this is just nothing. Well, she famously said that like he was like, I don't really love you. And then they, they were together for 10 years. They oh, had oh a son. so that's what I'm saying. So David Bowie's mom 
treated David Bowie's dad very similarly to how Bowie, Bowie treated, treated his wife. Bowie, everything first wife. First that. wife. He loved him. Yes. Also loved the son. Oh, just for clarification, you said Imam, who was the name of his second Imam. wife, not his mom. Okay, <laughs> yeah. His uh, mom was not, he was not a fan of Angie Bowie, though, yeah. was the one who may or may not have walked in on him fucking Mick Jagger. Huge story. Big, big story here. David Bowie and Mick Jagger were friends. They collaborated on a cover of uh, Dancing in the Street in the 80s, which is horrible a, music. Video. That music video is interesting. They're really getting in each other's faces on that one. They're just they're just like, yes, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Are they fucking? They're having intercourse. They're having yeah. sex they're on. They're having intercourse. Yeah. Like, Angie, you don't need to tell us. We saw yeah. it in the video. And apparently videos of, you know, fucking Prince were too inappropriate. But yeah. meanwhile, Mick Jagger. <laughs> I think that there's, there might be full penetration in there that video. Is. Yeah, if you pause at any moment, their dicks are out. Um, but she famously was like away, came home early, and she came in and the housekeeper was like, there's someone in your bed. She goes upstairs, David Bowie and Mick Jagger, heard of him, are naked in their marital bed. Yes. Together. And like David wakes up and he's like, hello. <laughs> <laughs> Angie would later say that they were just not having sex. I don't know what they yeah. were doing. I think it was a fun story that the, the tabloids wanted to pick up. I think mm. that's that, that's got to be a huge story. Two of the biggest rock stars of all time, like cheat, having an uh, adulterous affair. That's a huge story. Here's the thing, though. I know it's suspicious and it's weird, but those are two guys that did enough fucking blow to kill a dinosaur, and they could have probably just woken up naked next to each other. <laughs> it's very, very possible. It's very possible. <laughs> David Bowie. I just said his name because I couldn't think of anything David, else to say. David <laughs> Bowie. Just, it all comes back to Bowie. <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, sexual orientation definitely plays a part in but these various characters. Was faking it or not, I think it's, a, it's definitely a good thing because... I mean, at the end of the day, these kids that saw themselves as freaks, as different than, as whatever, like, he was number one. Was he exploiting them? For sure, whether he was gay or not. Like, he was exploiting this this era, and, like, he wanted to reach the kids. But also, that's, like, a cool thing, is he was, like, throughout his career, who knows, the kids are the ones that are informing me. The audience are the ones mm -hmm. that, are like, they're not copying me, I'm copying them, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But he was always self-deprecating in a way that, like, he knew he was actually very good. When when somebody's like, oh, God, I didn't have a good set, you know what I mean? Like, after, yeah. like, after they crush, which, that's me. But, um... <laughs> But that's like one of those things where it's like he was like always very self-deprecating, always like, I'm not that great. I'm stealing from everyone. But that's because he could say that because he did everyone better than they were doing themselves. Yeah. And I love the point about that he's appealing to the youth. And he always is. You know, yeah. even in the late 90s, he's like ahead of the curve when it comes to the power of the Internet and what yeah. the Internet is going to become. And of course, in Starman, you know, towards the beginning of his career let the children boogie you know it's the yeah. star man he, he as Ziggy Stardust is talking to the children he's talking yeah. to the kids and I think that's probably why so much of his stuff became more popular even after it was released even later on yeah because he was ahead of the curve he made something that like literally like it was like borrowing it sounded like faintly familiar but it was like not done and then a few years later people were like this is fucking good yeah <laughs> That's the other thing about Bowie. So I feel like a lot of people, I mean, he is completely beloved and it was shown in 2016 when he died, all oh, of the ceremonies, all of the mm -hmm. memoriams for him. And people were devastated, including, by the way, people who were always seen as misfits, who, who were always seen as outsiders. Yeah. You know, they, they absolutely related to Bowie, whether, as you said, whether it was put on or not, it kind of didn't matter at the end of the day. Yeah. Here's the thing. I feel like some people say, like, oh, David Bowie, he was all, it was all the, the costumes, it was mm -hmm. all the spectacle, it was all the wigs and all this stuff. The music is amazing. It's incredible. When I, I'm, I'm not listening to it while I walk down the street because I'm, because of his wigs. 
I'm listening to it because I think it's great, great music. Well, I think that's one of the things is like he started off as a fucking full blown diva, like he was Cher, mm. and then like it, it, it's not just the costumes; is he's able to be all these different characters and still make good music mm-hmm. because then. It's also the music, just right. as much as it is the character. Because even if some of the characters sucked, I mean, he was still doing things like sound-wise that would influence other people. And he was also, to be fair, the guy knew how to work with the right people. I mean, he collaborated with, what, John Lennon, James Brown, all these people. So these, he also loved making other people famous. He loved writing music for other yes, people. Yes, he produces. He loved, he loved handing fucking hits away. Like, he would write hits, give the song to other people, and he would be insulted that they didn't want to do it. He'd yeah. Like, this is a fucking banger. Yeah. David Bowie's one of those guys where you'll hear a song by another artist, and someone could be like, you know, actually, David Bowie wrote this. Mm-hmm. Best example for me is All the Young Dudes, which mm-hmm. is by Mott the Hoople. All the young dudes carry the news. And that... <laughs> no, keep going. <laughs> keep going. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Bowie does eventually make his own version of it, but mm. it's, you know, he gives it away, just like you said. I mean, he's generous. He gives songs to Iggy Pop. He wants other people to do well. He wants other people to have credit. And that's classy. Yeah. That's cool. So I was thinking that maybe we would choose one song. Yep. One of our, doesn't have to necessarily be our favorites, but one that we kind of just wanted to point out and not break it down, but just explain why we like it and, and kind of get a little more mm-hmm. hone in a little bit. So you got one for me? I do. I have one. That I heard for the first time, it wasn't even sung by David Bowie. The first time I heard this song was the first episode of a of a season of American Horror Story. <laughs> it was like the one with the creepy clowns, like the circus one where they had the freaks. And Jessica Lange sings a cover of Life on Mars in like the pilot episode of this, the first episode of that season. I was like, that was cool. What a weird fucking song. Did she just write that? And then... <laughs> And then years later, I would hear it before I even did all this. Like I, I was like, oh, it's David Bowie's song. It's like, that's cool. And then like listening to everything, that song is so fucking good. And it, uh, to be fair, a lot of like the weirder stuff I didn't love. Like I think my personal favorite Bowie is the stuff that still sounds like not traditional music, but like rock star stuff, but like spacey, but like still like reminiscent of other mm-hmm. things. Like the things that are like more so just like story songs or like weird ballads. They're not totally for me, but this song, I could listen to it on repeat. The build in this song, and it's true for a few of the big David Bowie hits, including Space Oddity, which is, you know, again, his first hit, Mm -hmm. but the build in Life on Mars, where it just starts off as a pretty simple song, the Mm -hmm. first stanza, and it just escalates into the... Plus, I mean, the title, what he sang in the song, I've never been a big lyrics guy, like, I I like to listen to music, and then, like, if it sounds fun. Yeah, I I, I noticed the lyrics after, like, the fourth or fifth time I hear it, yeah. Um, I agree with that. Like, even when I know the words of songs, I don't really know that I'm saying the words. So does that make sense? Like, yes, I, I'm not like yes. listening to them as poetry. I respect people that are able to really hear music and like hear this the words because I'm just like mm-hmm. listening to the 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 bop and the beep. Mm-hmm. But this is a this is a song that you're like listening to. It's like, oh, he's saying stuff. And also, this gets to Space Oddity again. Same thing. And mm-hmm. the whole album, Ziggy Stardust. The guy knows how to tell a story. Uh-huh. He tells it in an abstract way, and mm-hmm. things are jumping around in time. Mm-hmm. But life on Mars, it's a god-awful small affair to the girl with the mousy hair. But her mummy is yelling no, and her daddy has told her to go. It's about this girl who basically tries to escape from a troubled household. Mm-hmm. Mom and dad bickering. Mm-hmm. Sound familiar? What's that? Reminding you of David? <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, and that's another thing where he's, Doing somewhat autobiographical stuff, but it's always in a sneaky way, right? In this yeah. case, it's with a little girl. In Space Oddity, it's with some random spaceman. Yeah. And she goes to the movies to try to escape and is basically disappointed. Mm-hmm. But the film is a saddening bore, for she's lived it ten times or more. She mm-hmm. can spit in the eyes of fools as they ask her to focus. 
that's when it gets into the crazy cores. Can, Often I, tell gets- you, can I tell you what my deep cut would have been? Yes. I'm afraid of Americans. Ooh. It's a good song. Now that a song. is a deep cut. Let me tell you something. It's a great song. It's from his later stuff. I think it's like late 80s, 90s. What is it? I'm afraid of Americans. Ooh. He's, you got to fast forward a little more. 95. He's wearing parachute pants in the fucking thing. Right. You don't even like the song. <laughs> it's just the parachute. <laughs> I just love those pants. What's uh, your favorite part about the song? The pants. I uh, think it would be the pants. I think it's just like it says cool things. The beat, the sound of it. It's fucking sick. I've been listening to that just... It, I would say that's number two played uh, as Life on Mars since I've been listening to him. That's really amazing. Yeah. That would be a later Bowie and a nice example of how probably if you know Bowie, you know his early stuff, but he didn't disappear by any it means. It didn't sound anything like other stuff that he'd been doing. Mm. It, if you told me that was the same artist, I wouldn't have believed you right. if I didn't know like anything about it. Right. But that's fucking cool. Yeah, that's to have two songs that you love by somebody that don't even sound like they're in the same universe. Yeah, and are 24 years apart. How many different artists can you say that about? Katy Perry. (laughs) (laughs) That's about it. It's a short list. (laughs) Bowie Perry. (laughs) All right. What's yours, please? The, I wanted to be a little more, okay. So I was thinking Life on Mars originally. Then I was thinking something off of Ziggy Stardust. It could be Starman. It could be Mm -hmm. Moon Age Daydream. It could be Five Years. The whole album is just incredible. Mm -hmm. Then... I'm I'm just giving you my little my little journey. Oh, I'm here. listening. Then I'm, I wanted to maybe do something from the Berlin trilogy. So David Bowie, when he goes to Berlin to kind of sober up, he's hanging out with Iggy Pop and he's collaborating with Brian Eno. Quick side note. Yes. Iggy Pop, one of his best friends in this world. Uh, the reason why Iggy loved him is because Iggy spent some time in an insane asylum before mm. they went to Berlin together. Mm. And David Bowie was one of the few people that went and visited him. Mm. But the most Bowie thing in this world, he went to visit him and the first thing he said was, Want some blow? <laughs> that's great that's so nice <laughs> he visited this guy in a fucking mental ward and he's like you want some coke <laughs> not enough people offer people in mental institutions blow that's, i mean that's that's medicine so <laughs> the song so i was thinking something from the berlin trilogy because not to be pretentious they're often considered his some of his best work mm-hmm. and i think that a lot of a lot of uh, let me say music critics Ugh. would often consider these albums his best particularly uh the first two low and heroes and then he makes a third one called lodger so this is 77 through 79 heroes is actually the only one that he actually recorded in berlin but but we like to call them all the berlin trilogy because mm-hmm. he was kind of around that time um so i was thinking about the song be my wife who goes um, to berlin to sober up by the way He's in West Berlin, and he's, you know, getting clean. Yeah. <laughs> it's just hanging out at Beer Fest. <laughs> but the song that I am going to end up going with is off the same album as Life on Mars. I'm going to go with Changes. It's a great song. Changes. Every time I thought I'd got it made, it seemed the taste was not so sweet. So I turned myself to face me, but I've never caught a glimpse of how the others must see the faker. I'm much too fast to take that test. And self-conscious guy. Loves calling himself a fraud in his music. That's something that never goes away. Right. He loves throwing that in. Also, can I say, your reading voice is beautiful. Thank you. It's intoxicating. This song is great. And then... Play a little bit. Play a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'll play the actual recording on YouTube. (laughs) Just holding my mic to the computer. Turn and face the strange... That was a good British singing voice. Well, what I love about Bowie, as opposed to the Beatles, is that he sounds British in his songs. You notice that the Beatles, in 99% of their songs, don't pick up the British accent. It might be, in order to appeal to an American audience. 
But I think that that's vice versa. I think it kind of takes a little bit of effort to sound British as well when you're singing. Right. Yeah, for some reason, the accent goes away with a lot of people. The Beatles are the main... There is one... This is just a little tidbit. The Beatles have one line, literally one word in one song where they have a very clear British accent, and that is the line, the word customer in the song Penny Lane. The barber shaves another customer. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Thanks. (laughs) So changes would be the one that I would go with, although... And I also, one of the reasons why I choose Changes, not necessarily because it's the best song, but just the line, turn and face the strange, I think is a great encapsulation of Bowie. Yeah. I think that's like really cool. And what made me so happy that I chose this, because I chose it originally as a bit, because I knew David Bowie as a surface level, this like androgynous, what the fuck is he kind of person, which I think sometimes I'm accused of. (laughs) While I was reading about David Bowie, I was just reminded of you in so many ways. Stop it. Most of them fucking Mick Jagger. (laughs) Well, I mean, Bowie actually fucked Mick Jagger. He doesn't just jerk off to him every night. (laughs) A little different. Uh, (laughs) You jerk off to an old Mick Jagger. (laughs) (laughs) Just him dancing around Um. now, playing the hits. (laughs) good the guy's confident um i think that there's just something so there's something so cool about it that the fact that like well we just talked about this the other day we were like a group of four of us were having lunch and we were like talking about like everybody has their thing and i was like i don't really have a thing and then mike our friend mike romante shout out goes your thing is you have too many things and i think that's like that's that's very much that that's one of the most things that i was like i really liked it to him because like i just try a bunch of shit if i want to color my hair i'll color my hair if i want to get into tattoo Whatever. It's like, it's fun. It's weird. Being self-referential. Keep reinventing yourself. Keep trying stuff. Just be fucking weird. Yeah. And fail for the sake of failing. Right. I think is like, that is the best thing to take away from this. And one of my biggest takeaways that I didn't even realize was a philosophy of mine until I heard this this guy in this book talk about it. But also, like, it was some sort of quote that I'm changing. But it, the, basically, the basic understanding is that David Bowie's thing was, we're all posers. He understood that, so you might as well fucking pose. You know what I mean? Yeah. Go for the wall. Nobody's, everybody's constantly borrowing from each other. Nobody's incredibly original. Everybody has all these insecurities and these craziness. Everybody wants attention, Mm. for better or for worse. Oh, sure. And everyone has the duality of it. Because, like, you know, he, in a lot of ways, was shy. Everyone wants to, everyone wants to, at the same time, just blend in Mm. and be the star of the show. Yeah. And I feel like that duality is present in everyone. Maybe one, you know, side tugs a person more than the other. Mm-hmm. But Bowie described himself. He said originally in his career that he pictured himself kind of being behind the scenes. He even said he would wait. Maybe this is the Anthony Newley thing again, that he would want to write musicals. I weirdly could see him as a film director as well. Right. I could see him really because what made him cool is he saw what was great about other people. Mm. And that's what makes a really good person behind the scenes. Yeah. He said that he became a front man, that he became the singer pretty much out of necessity, that no one else wanted to sing his songs. Of course, he might be just being humble, but he has definitely both those sides to him. And of course, by creating characters, he is shielding himself a little bit. Yeah. In the early career, he's not technically David Bowie on stage. He's Ziggy. You know, he's... He's he's up there as the thin white duke. But I I will say you're right, and also I think that kind of makes him get away mentally with being this coked out, insane person, this drug addled kind of skeleton for the '70s and then parts of the rest of his career. Uh, was the fact that like that wasn't me; that was a lot insane. But 
I think I he's at his coolest to me when he's like focused. When in in interviews like that MTV interview when he's like sober and he's clear and he's just kind of where you get flashes of David Jones. Yeah. I think that's cool and so smart and so well spoken. I know the guy's brilliant. Right. So we'll end the episode. Uh, first of all, by thanking you, uh, you have a wonderful podcast. Oh, called... <laughs> I forgot you were on it. I was like, stop it. It's really <laughs> lovely. Uh, your co-hosts are, oh, wow. May, May is very May good. Is May. May is very good. Um, yeah, We Were Had. It's a Unsolved Mysteries comedy podcast uh, with me, Benjamin, and May Planert. It's great. I want to thank you so much for being on it. And uh, turn and face the strange, oh, as they say. Let's catch some strange. <laughs> uh, all right. Bye, everybody. <laughs>